Good evening and welcome once again to our Bible study series. We're continuing the series that we have entitled Out of Bondage into Abundance. Uh, we have now come to part four. And as we've mentioned numerous times, the notes and the recordings for each one of these studies are available on our website, and that is new-life-ministries.org. And if you are following along in the notes, and I would strongly recommend you download the notes and do that. Uh, if you don't have them tonight, that's fine. But we are picking up on page 38, and again, that is in part 4 of what will be a seven-part series. We are looking at the story of Israel coming out of Egypt and moving into the promised land, the land flowing with milk and honey. It's a very rich Bible study, and we're taking quite a bit of time to do this because it is a rather extensive study. And of course, many, many chapters of the Old Testament are devoted to this story, and much of the Old Testament centers around this part of Israel's history. And each part of their journey from Egypt into the Promised Land, it really happened. We're, we're talking about real human history. These are actual events that are recorded for us in the Scriptures, but as we've been mentioning repeatedly, as these events were unfolding, the Holy Spirit was painting a picture for you and for me of something far greater. And let me take just a moment to go through this again. The Old Testament often uses what are called types or shadows. And these are things that point toward a future reality, where those things that really happened in the Old Testament are foreshadowing a far greater and often a spiritual and an eternal reality. Uh, for instance, we saw that the only way the Israelites could come out of Egypt was through the blood of the Passover lamb. They really did take lambs kill them, and apply the blood of those lambs over their doors. And on the Passover night, all of those Israelite homes that were under the blood of that lamb, they were spared from the death angel. And the Israelites came out from slavery that very night of the Passover. Well, coming over to the New Testament and our experience in Christ... Paul, writing to the Corinthians, he says, Christ is our Passover lamb. Well, the parallel is very important for us to understand. Israel came out through the blood of a literal lamb. We come out of the bondage of sin through the blood that Jesus Christ shed for us on the cross of Calvary. And likewise, every detail in this story it points to a far greater spiritual reality in our experience as we follow Jesus Christ. There, 
journey was a long journey, and our journey is a long journey. They went from bondage into the abundance of Canaan, the promised land. We come out of darkness in the marvelous light. We come out of the slavery of sin into the glorious freedom of the Spirit of God, and ultimately into the abundant life that Jesus Christ spoke of, and into the abundance of heaven. Meanwhile, we're here on earth, and there is an abundant spiritual life for us to enter into. And what we're studying in this present part of our series is Israel coming to Mount Sinai. They came out of Egypt through the blood of the Passover lamb. They passed through the waters of the Red Sea, where all of the Egyptians who were pursuing them and wanting to drag them back into bondage were drowned, buried under the waters of the Red Sea, put to death once and for all. We saw that it is a powerful picture of what happens in New Testament water baptism. And thirdly, they came 50 days after their exodus from Egypt. They came to Mount Sinai. And we saw last week that they actually remained at Mount Sinai for almost an entire year. So this was not a casual three or four day visit. This was a long event at Mount Sinai, and a number of significant things happened during that year that they were there, camped at Mount Sinai. And we are looking at these one by one. Let me outline seven important things that took place at Mount Sinai. Each of these is an important part of our salvation experience. And as we studied last time, Israel coming to Mount Sinai is a glorious picture for you and for me of the New Testament experience called the baptism in the Holy Spirit. Mount Sinai was covered with fire and smoke, and God descended and spoke to them face to face. And they had a number of other uh, very powerful experiences that we're going to outline again in a moment. But that corresponds to what happened on the day of Pentecost when tongues of fire came upon the disciples. And the promised baptism in the Holy Spirit took place. John the Baptist even called it the baptism in the Holy Spirit and fire. So fire is often associated with the Holy Spirit. So that fire on Mount Sinai foreshadowed the fire of the Holy Spirit that would come upon us through the baptism in the Holy Spirit. Seven important things happened at Mount Sinai. We looked at the first one last time. Number one, it was at Mount Sinai that God revealed his law and made a covenant with the people. Remember, Moses went up and came down with the two tablets of the law. That was the basis of 
the covenant God was making with Israel, his people. Second thing, and this is where we want to pick up tonight, God brought his people out of Egypt, but when he brings them to Mount Sinai, he brings them to himself in an intimate, holy marriage relationship with himself. And the third thing that happens at Mount Sinai that's very significant, and this occupies many, many chapters of the Old Testament, God sought for a temple where he could dwell. And there at Mount Sinai, he reveals to Moses the pattern for this temple where he wants to dwell. It's called the Tabernacle of Testimony, or the Tabernacle in the Wilderness. It was a mobile temple. It moved with the people, and God moved with the temple. And he dwelled in the midst of the people in that temple. Fourthly, at Mount Sinai, God revealed his glory to the people. They had seen his power already. They had seen God do some amazing things at the Red Sea. But it's here at Mount Sinai that God reveals his glory, his fire, his power and majesty to the people. Fifthly, and very significantly, it's only when all of the approximately two and a half million Israelite slaves, remember they've been slaves for 400 years, it's only at Mount Sinai that God organizes them by tribe and even in smaller units. He unites the people and organizes them into one body, one mighty army. They're all now marching in ranks as an army from Mount Sinai onwards. Sixthly, and this is also highly significant, it's at Mount Sinai that God establishes a kingdom of priests. He establishes a holy priesthood. And he reveals to the Israelites that his desire, his purpose, was to make all of them a kingdom of priests. And finally, after all those other things are accomplished, and remember this takes almost one year, this whole process, God prepares the people to begin to march through the wilderness into their promised inheritance. So, point one we covered last time, God revealed his law, and he made a covenant with the people there at Mount Sinai. And we saw that in 2 Corinthians 3, the Apostle Paul draws numerous parallels between what happened to Israel at Mount Sinai and what happens to you and me when we are baptized with the Holy Spirit. He says there in 2 Corinthians that in the case of Israel, God wrote his law on tablets of stone. But that was just a foreshadowing of what his real desire is, and that is 
by the Spirit of the living God to write his law, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. And so the law of the Spirit is now the basis of this new covenant where the ministry of the Spirit is the central emphasis of this new covenant. And by the way, let me interject something here. Um, the things we are sharing in these Bible studies, they are very basic but very important foundational truths. Uh, in Hebrews chapter 6, verses 1 and 2, it talks about foundations that must be laid before we can go on to maturity or perfection. It mentions the foundations of repentance, of faith, and then it mentions baptisms in the plural, baptisms. These were essential basic doctrines in the early church. And several people have been commenting to me that what we're sharing in these Bible studies, it really is basic foundational doctrine. Faith, repentance, the blood of Jesus Christ, water baptism, baptism in the Holy Spirit. But sadly, a lot of these things are not, e not even being taught or emphasized in churches anymore. Many churches, many mainline churches have moved further and further away from these basic truths to the point now they don't even believe in water baptism and many of them don't even preach or talk about the baptism in the Holy Spirit. How can you have a house without a foundation? The book of Psalms uh, chapter 11, it says, if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? And no wonder the enemy has attacked these basic foundations. And we have to be bold to preach these things to our children, to our friends, in our churches. These are the essential truths that make the backbone, the foundation of our churches repentance, faith in the blood of Jesus Christ, water baptism by immersion, just as the Israelites passed through the Red Sea and all of the Egyptians were buried. So we are immersed in water, signifying the burial of the old man so we can be raised by the power of the Holy Spirit to live and walk in newness of life. And as we are now in this part four, talking about Mount Sinai and how it connects with the baptism in the Holy Spirit, I am more convinced than I've ever been in 40 years of ministry that the Holy Spirit is so critical, so vital, so essential if we are going to have a real New Testament church. Take the Holy Spirit out, and you don't even have a church. It is not by might, not by power, but by my Spirit, says the Lord. So, this is a very important part of the study that we have now come to, 
and I'm going to be moving very slowly and very deliberately through this because it is so vitally important. Again, we saw last time, God made a covenant with Israel at Mount Sinai, likewise, through the blood of Jesus, through water baptism, and through the baptism in the Holy Spirit, God brings us into a new covenant where there's a new law. This law is not written on tablets of stone. It's not a list of rules that we tack up on the wall in the church. This is a whole different kind of a law. It's called the law of the Spirit. And how can you have the law of the Spirit without the Spirit? So it's the Holy Spirit, Paul taught in 2 Corinthians 3, who is writing this law on our hearts. And in Ezekiel 36, uh, we saw last time, and I will read this again because it really is the heart of the new covenant. Ezekiel 36, verses 26 and 27, God said way back in Ezekiel's day, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone. Remember, the old covenant was written on stone. Now God's going to remove that heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And here's the essential ingredient. I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. So, the new covenant is not going to be external. It's going to be internal. The covenant is now inside of us. The law is inside of us. The law giver is inside of us. And when God puts his spirit in us through the baptism in the Holy Spirit, he says now from within that Holy Spirit is going to move us to follow God's laws and decrees. We would also get the word motivate from that. So there's an internal motivation now. Something inside of you wants to please God, wants to serve God, wants to worship God. Something inside of you, not your husband or your wife or your pastor or your father or your mother, but something inside of you is whispering to you, pray, fast, read your Bible, memorize scripture, win souls, get filled with the Holy Spirit. If you listen carefully, the Holy Spirit will start writing his law on your heart. One other thing I want to repeat and emphasize here, it was 50 days after Israel had come out of Egypt that they came to Mount Sinai. Clearly, this is a whole different, separate experience from that which they had in Egypt and from that which they had in the Red Sea. Sadly, many Christian churches now they get all this muddled together and they say, oh, well, as soon as you're born again, you've got everything you need. As soon as you accept Jesus, you've got the whole package. Well, that's not true. That's not biblical. Jesus spoke about three experiences in John 3. He said, unless you're born again, 
you won't see the kingdom. But you must be born of water and of the Spirit to enter the kingdom. Seeing and entering are not the same thing. Born again people see the kingdom. People born of water and born of the Spirit enter the kingdom of God. Born of water and born of Spirit corresponds to the baptisms that are listed there in Hebrews 6 as foundations of our Christian lives. Baptism in water and baptism in the Holy Spirit. And many would argue, okay, we also believe in water baptism, but the minute you accept Christ and take water baptism, you're automatically baptized in the Holy Spirit. Not necessarily. Read the book of Acts. You find a variety of experiences listed there in the book of Acts. In Acts 2, the disciples were baptized with the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. They were already saved. They had already been baptized. In Acts chapter 8, when Philip took the gospel to Samaria, the Bible says he preached the gospel. They they cast out demons. There were many healings and miracles. And they were baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. But it goes on to say, none of them had yet been baptized in the Holy Spirit. And so they had to call for the apostles, Peter and John, to come down from Jerusalem, lay hands on them so that they might receive the Holy Spirit. So they were saved, they were water baptized, but not yet baptized in the Holy Spirit. In Acts chapter 10, when Peter first takes the gospel to the Gentiles in the household of Cornelius, as he's preaching to these Gentiles, who for the first time are hearing the good news of the gospel, they start bursting out in tongues, baptized in the Holy Spirit. And then Peter says, now we need to baptize them in water. So they got saved, baptized in the Holy Spirit, and then, after that, they needed to be baptized in water. In Acts 19, Paul comes to Ephesus and finds a group of disciples there, and he asks them, Have any of you received the Holy Spirit since you believed? They said, We don't know what you're talking about, man. What Holy Spirit? Paul laid hands on them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. So, the baptism in the Holy Spirit, it is a separate and distinct experience. Yes, you can be saved, baptized in water, and baptized in the Holy Spirit all in one day. That's the preferred way, and that's the way it was done often in the early church. But it's not to say that just because someone has received Christ as Savior, that they're automatically baptized in the Holy Spirit. This is a separate, a different, it's a unique experience where the Spirit of God comes inside and takes up residence. We're going to talk more about that when we talk about becoming temples of the Holy Spirit. But the heart of the New Covenant is this. I will put my Spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees. Romans 8, we saw, 
Paul talks about the law of the Spirit. And by obeying this law of the Spirit, we can fulfill all of the righteous requirements that were made there at Mount Sinai through the law written on stone. But it's no longer laws written on stone. It's in our hearts. It's called the royal law, the law of love. And God sheds his love abroad in our hearts through the Holy Spirit so we can love him and love one another and walk in the Spirit, fulfilling his every desire. Now, let's start into some new territory. Again, if you're following the notes, we're on page 38. We've come to Roman numeral number 2. This is the second of seven important experiences that Israel has at Mount Sinai. The second thing that happens here at Mount Sinai, God brings his people to himself. He brings them close. He brings them into an intimate, and we're going to see, it's actually not just a covenant, it's a marriage covenant relationship with himself. So, at Mount Sinai, we find God speaking to Moses and all of the people, and I'm quoting here, face to face. And it's there that he calls them his treasured possession. And we'll find in another verse, he becomes a husband unto them. All right, let's look at some verses here. Deuteronomy 5, let's read from verse 1 to 4. Deuteronomy 5, 1 to 4. Moses summoned all Israel and said, Hear Israel, the decrees and laws I declare in your hearing today. Learn them and be sure to follow them. The Lord our God made a covenant with us at Horeb. Remember, last time we mentioned Horeb is another word for Sinai. The Lord made a covenant with us at Sinai. It was not with our ancestors that the Lord made this covenant, but with us. With all of us who are alive here today, the Lord spoke to you face to face, out of the fire on the mountain. Notice that. The Lord spoke to you face to face, out of the fire on the mountain. And in Exodus 19, which is the initial uh, chapter where they first come to Mount Sinai, let's read some scriptures there again. Exodus 19 Let's firstly read verses 3 to 6. Exodus 19, 3 to 6. Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain, that of course is Mount Sinai, and said, This is what you are to say to the descendants of Jacob, and what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt, 
and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Notice that. God is starting to speak to them in a very different way. He wants to be intimate with them, talking face-to-face with them, carrying them on eagles' wings, and, I love these words, I brought you to myself. God doesn't just want to save us from hell. He doesn't want to just save us from sin and from darkness. He desires to bring us back into an intimate, face-to-face relationship with Him. Adam and Eve had it, and they lost it through sin. But God is wanting, even now, today, to bring us back into that kind of intimacy. And even though it was lost through Adam and Eve's sin, He was showing the Israelites that this is still His desire. He brought them to himself. And listen to verse 5. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. We'll talk more at a later time about verse 6, becoming a kingdom of priests and holy nation. But just listen again to these words. I brought you to myself, and you will be my treasured possession. You can feel God's love in these words. You can feel his heart longing for closeness, for intimacy between himself and the whole nation of Israel. But this, we're going to see, is very much like the marriage covenant. It's intimate, it's holy, but it requires a commitment. It requires faithfulness. It requires purity and holiness. So this is a holy relationship that he's calling them into. You'll see that in these next verses as we read a little further down now in Exodus 19 from verse 10 to 15. The Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them. Today and tomorrow, have them wash their clothes and be ready by the third day. Because on that day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. Now pause for a minute. God has just told them he's brought them to himself. He loves them. They're his treasured possession. He's desiring this face-to-face intimacy with them. However, and this is repeated over and over as he continues to speak to the children of Israel, God is holy, holy, holy. 
And if they want to approach him, they must consecrate themselves, sanctify themselves, cleanse and wash themselves. There must be a preparation before they can come near God. Notice again these words. Go to the people, consecrate them today and tomorrow, have them wash their clothes, and be ready by the third day. Be prepared. So they actually need three days here to get ready to meet the Lord. There has to be a preparation, consecration, cleansing, sanctification. They've got to wash their clothes. And I can imagine some rebel in the crowd saying, I don't need to wash my clothes before I go meet God. Well, they would have been struck dead. And I don't need to wait three days. I'm going up the mountain right now. Well, read the next few verses and we'll find out what would have happened to anyone with that kind of an attitude. Verse 12, put limits for the people around the mountain and tell them, be careful that you do not approach the mountain or touch the foot of it. Now, wait a minute. I thought God wanted to bring them close. He does, but it's on his terms, not theirs. Put limits for the people around the mountain. In other words, draw a line, put a fence, you know, this yellow tape that the police put up, don't cross this line, something like that. Put limits around the mountain and tell them, be careful that you do not approach the mountain or touch the foot of it. Why? Whoever touches the mountain is to be put to death. So, God is beginning to reveal something to the people here. He loves them. They're his treasured possession. He's bringing them to himself. He wants an intimate relationship with them, but he is holy, 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 and they must sanctify themselves before coming near God. Verse 13, they are to be stoned or shot with arrows. Not a hand is to be laid on them. No person or animal shall be permitted to live. Only when the ram's horn sounds a long blast may they approach the mountain. And the next two verses are quite interesting. After Moses had gone down the mountain to the people, he consecrated them and they washed their clothes. Okay, that's what they were told to do. But then something else happens. Then he said to the people, Prepare yourselves for the third day. Abstain from sexual relations. Now, that wasn't mentioned in the original verses 10 and 11. But obviously, Moses received this revelation and this understanding that the holiness of God requires a consecration, a sanctification, before these people can come into his presence. Not that there was anything sinful about 
marital relations, but he wanted to teach them that in this moment, part of their preparation was even to abstain from those relations. Now, in Jeremiah 31, fast forward many years, but here the Lord is speaking through the prophet Jeremiah about a coming new covenant, but then he contrasts it with the old covenant that he made with the Israelites way back here at Mount Sinai. And he reveals something very fascinating about that covenant that was made at Mount Sinai. Jeremiah 31, verses 31 and 32. Both Jeremiah and Ezekiel prophesied about this coming new covenant. Days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt. An obvious reference to the covenant of Sinai. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant. And here's the interesting part. Though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. That's very interesting. Though I was a husband to them. So, as far as God's concerned, when he brings the nation of Israel to Mount Sinai, what he's really doing is proposing marriage to them. That's right. I want to marry you. I want to be your husband. I want to have this intimate, holy relationship with you. And it is so holy and so intimate that you need to take three days to consecrate yourselves wash your clothes, and yes, even abstain from any sexual relations. Because in type and shadow, it is pointing toward a spiritual marriage that God desires to have with his people. So, at Mount Sinai, God becomes a husband to the Israelites. He brings them to himself. He calls them his treasured possession. And he brings them to understand the purity and the holiness that must be at the center of this marriage relationship. One more verse from Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 14 and then verse 20. Return faithless people, declares the Lord. He's speaking to Israel, obviously. Return faithless people, declares the Lord, for I am your husband. doesn't say I will become your husband. I am. God was Israel's husband. They weren't a very good wife, but he was their husband. And he's now rebuking them for their faithlessness and calling them back 
to a faithful marriage covenant. Return, faithless people, declares the Lord, for I am your husband. I will choose you, one from a town, two from a clan, and bring you to Zion. Verse 20, But like a woman unfaithful to her husband, so you, Israel, have been unfaithful to me, declares the Lord. That's the sad testimony of Israel from Mount Sinai onwards. Although God wanted to bring them into this intimate marriage relationship, becoming their husband, by and large, they played the harlot. They were an unfaithful wife to the Lord. One other verse from Hosea the prophet. Hosea chapter 2, verses 19 and 20. God says, I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you in righteousness and justice, in love and compassion. I will betroth you in faithfulness, and you will acknowledge the Lord. So, from Mount Sinai onwards, we find this marriage language of God's covenant with Israel. It wasn't just some sort of a cold business contract. He brought them to himself in intimacy. He wanted to be like a husband to them and to have this close marriage covenant with them. And very interestingly, after bringing Israel to Mount Sinai, and bringing them into that marriage covenant, God also made it clear through the very Ten Commandments that he delivered to Moses, and you can find this in Exodus 20, where the Ten Commandments are listed, God reveals to them there that he is a jealous God. He did not want them having any other gods. Remember, if you're married to me, I'm your one and your only husband. I don't want you married to other gods. So God, very right there in the very uh, essence of the law that made up this marriage covenant, he tells them, I'm jealous. I'm a jealous God. I want all of you. I want your undivided love, faithfulness, devotion, and attention. Now, let's bring this over into the New Testament. Through the baptism in the Holy Spirit, we already saw in 2 Corinthians 3, God brings us into this new covenant where he begins to write the law of the Spirit upon our hearts. But something even more mysterious and more amazing takes place. And if this were not clearly spelled out in the New Testament, you might think that these are some kind of crazy revelations that somebody made up in their own head. But God calls us now to be the bride of Christ. Through the baptism in the Holy Spirit, each believer is united with the Lord in one spirit and corporately we, the body of Christ, 
are espoused or uh, promised in marriage to one husband, Jesus Christ. Now, let's look at some scripture. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. We'll read, first of all, verse 11, and then we'll look at verses 15 to 20. 1 Corinthians 6, 11, and then verses 15 to 20. Paul lists a whole group of people who will not inherit the kingdom of God, uh, homosexuals and drunkards and adulterers and all that. But then he says in verse 11, But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and, underline this, by the Spirit of our God. Three words you should highlight there. Washed, sanctified, justified, in the name of Christ, and by the Spirit of our God. So the Holy Spirit is importantly involved in each one of these processes, washed, sanctified, and justified. Now, down to verse 15. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said, the two will become one flesh. But whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body. But whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. Now, Paul is speaking on several different levels here. He's speaking on a very carnal, fleshly, physical level. He's warning the Corinthian believers, stay away from sexual immorality. Stay away from fornication. Stay away from prostitutes. Stay away from adultery. Matter of fact, he uses a stronger word in verse 18. Flee. Put on your tennis shoes and run as fast as you can away from this stuff. He's talking about physical sin. Homosexuality, adultery, immorality of any kind. Flee from it. But his reasoning is very important to understand, and 
You don't find this line of reasoning anywhere else in the New Testament where warnings are given about fornication, adultery, homosexuality, or other kinds of sexual perversions and immorality. His line of reasoning is this. From Genesis chapter 2, two become one through sexual relations. He actually quotes in verse 16. Um, I'll read the whole verse again. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute, obviously in sexual relations, is one with her in body? Maybe you weren't bargaining for that when you went after a prostitute, but he says, when you join yourself with a prostitute, when you have sexual relations outside of marriage, there's some kind of a uniting, some kind of a joining that takes place. What's his proof? Genesis chapter 2. For it is said, and he's quoting from Genesis, the two will become one flesh. But, and here's the most powerful argument in this whole passage, but whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Well, in the whole context, he's talking about intimate relations. He's talking about marriage. He's talking about sexual union between two people. But now he's shifting from that to a spiritual union that takes place through the Holy Spirit, whereby our body becomes the temple of the Holy Spirit. Let me read verses 17 down to 20 again now, with this as the backdrop. He's first warned them about physical relations, physical immorality, perversion, fornication, etc. There's a joining in the flesh that takes place there. But, verse 17, whoever is united with the Lord is one with Him in spirit. I would say what he's implying is you marry the Lord. If you follow this whole context, what he's saying is you're united with the Lord now in marriage. You're one with him in spirit. Therefore, remember the Israelites had to be consecrated, washed, and even abstain from sexual relations before entering into this covenant with God at Mount Sinai. Now... Paul says to spirit-baptized believers in the New Testament, flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Okay, so what? What's the big deal about the body? Verse 19. Do you not know that, and I'm adding these words, through the baptism in the Holy Spirit, your bodies are now temples 
of the Holy Spirit, who is in you, whom you have received from God. When did you receive the Holy Spirit? Through the baptism in the Holy Spirit. Do you not know that your bodies are now temples of the Holy Spirit, who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. Later on, writing to the same Corinthians, in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul is even more clear in his wording. 2 Corinthians 11, verses 2 to 3. Remember, God told the Israelites at Mount Sinai, I'm a jealous God, because I'm your husband now. I have every right to be jealous. Well, notice what Paul says. I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. Now, there's an ungodly jealousy, but there's also a godly jealousy. This is God's kind of jealousy, which was first revealed there at Mount Sinai, because he became a husband to them. I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. What in the world is he talking about? I promised you to one husband, to Christ, so that I might present you as a pure virgin to him. But I am afraid that just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning, your minds may somehow be led astray from your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. What Paul is saying, and we're not even going to be able to finish this section tonight because I don't want to hurry through this. And sadly, this is not being taught in very many churches today. But it is central to understanding who we are as followers of Christ. We're not just believers. We're not just disciples. He wants to marry us. We have been espoused. We have been promised to one husband, to Jesus Christ. What does that make us? The bride of Christ. That's right. The church is intended to be Christ's bride. But notice, he's not going to marry a harlot. No way, no how. He wants to marry a pure, holy virgin. We'll see next time in Ephesians 5. Paul goes into a whole lot more detail there. He wants to marry a bride who's without spot, without wrinkle, without blemish. A bride, a church, a body of believers who are totally devoted to him faithful, consecrated to him, sanctified, set apart from all the defilements, all the pollutions of this world. And let me tell you something, the world is becoming more and more polluted every day, and you and I need to make a choice. Are we going to join the world, or are we going to come out and be separate? 
Well, only those that are separate from the defilements, the impurities of this world, can become the bride of Christ. Paul was afraid already that the Corinthians were starting to get corrupted. They were starting to get defiled, and they were starting to lose sight of who they were. That's why he says, he says, I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. I promised you to one husband to Christ so that I might present you as a pure virgin to him. But I am afraid that just as Eve was deceived by the devil, by the serpent's cunning, your minds may somehow be led astray from your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. Let me finish with one last verse, and this is as far as we're going to be able to get in this session. Romans chapter 7, verse 4. And I'm reading from the New King James Version. Paul says, Therefore, my brethren, you also have become dead to the law through the body of Christ, that you may be married to another. Notice those words, married to another, to him who was raised from the dead, that we should bear fruit to God. Maybe you didn't understand all this when you got saved, or took water baptism, or received the Holy Spirit. But if you've been baptized in the Holy Spirit, I have no doubt in my mind the Holy Spirit is beginning to speak to you now about the fact that you are married to Christ. The Spirit and the Bride say, Come. Notice that. The Spirit and the Bride, they're one, and they're all saying the same thing. Come, Lord Jesus. That's the Spirit we have received. The Holy Spirit inside of us is continually trying to minister to us, speak to us, call us away from the things of this world, and get our attention, our passion, our devotion directed, directed upwards toward that great marriage day that is about to take place when Jesus Christ comes for his own. This all takes place through the baptism in the Holy Spirit, where we are united with the Lord. We become one with him in spirit, we saw in 1 Corinthians 1. And now we have been promised to one husband, to Jesus Christ. We're married to him who was raised from the dead. Next time we're going to look in more detail at the fact that if we are called to be Christ's bride, obviously he wants us to be holy, 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 just as he is. And that's what we saw at Mount Sinai. God said, I want to bring you to myself, but take three days to get ready. Consecrate yourselves, 
sanctify yourselves, wash your clothes, and abstain from sexual relations, because I'm marrying you. Let's pray tonight and ask God to really give us a clearer revelation, a clearer understanding of these things, and pray for the whole church, that the church might come more and more into this understanding that we haven't just joined some club or some religion. God is calling us into a mysterious, amazing relationship where he wants to be our husband, intimately related to him. Let's pray. Father God, in the name of Jesus, we thank you for the gift of the Holy Spirit. Lord, I thank you for the promise of the Holy Spirit. It's a free gift that you have offered all of your children, both near and far, all those whom you have called into this great salvation. You've promised the fullness of your Holy Spirit. God, I pray for anyone on this phone line or anyone who might listen to this message at a future time that is not yet baptized with the fullness of your Holy Spirit. Fill them with your Spirit. Oh God, fill us with the fire, the power, and the glory of your Holy Spirit. Write your law upon our hearts. Put it into our minds and let each and every one of us know and understand that you've brought us into a holy, intimate marriage covenant with yourself. And Lord, you love us with an everlasting love. You've made us your treasured possession. And Lord, help us to honor you in the way that we live. Help us to walk worthy of this great high calling all of the days of our lives. Now bless and keep each one of us as the apple of your eye. Keep us by the power of your Holy Spirit until that final day when Jesus calls us up to be with himself. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.